Welcome back to the Rewilding Earth podcast. I'm your host, Jack Humphrey. Join us today as Kevin Bixby, founder of Wildlife for All, gives a master class on wildlife governance reform and exposes the hunting and fishing power structure that is run and influenced by actors who are not serving the public interest when it comes to protecting non-game wildlife. Today's episode is jam-packed and one of the most important episodes in this podcast series, so we're going to jump right in. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kevin Bixby is the founder and executive director of the Southwest Environmental Center. After decades of advocating for wildlife, he realized that as long as people who viewed wild animals as soulless resources were making all the decisions about how they should be managed, wildlife advocates would be fighting endless rearguard actions to stop bad things from happening, and rewilding would remain a distant dream. So he and the Southwest Environmental Center team decided to launch Wildlife for All, a national campaign to reform state wildlife management to be more ecologically driven, democratic, and compassionate. Last fall, 2021, we officially launched Wildlife for All, and that is a national campaign to reform state wildlife management in every state to be more ecologically focused, more democratic, and more compassionate. We have built an entirely new website, wildlifeforall.us. It's an effort to improve wildlife conservation in the United States at the state level. And then states are so important in the United States for wildlife conservation because we don't have a federal wildlife uh, uh, biodiversity protection strategy, a national one. The states have primary jurisdiction over wildlife. If they're not doing a good job, that's a real problem for wildlife. And that's, that's what this campaign is all about. We put together an advisory committee, some, uh, some prominent uh, names, some, some really experienced uh, thinkers and, and advocates uh, in the wildlife space, wildlife advocacy, uh, including John Davis of the Rewilding Institute. We're growing a national coalition of individuals and organizations that are getting behind this movement. And currently we have over 60 organizations in about 30 states represented in the coalition. And we're going to just keep expanding that as we go forward. What's the next step though? Cause it still feels daunting to me how you crack this nut. Yeah. Uh, it's a huge undertaking. Uh, you know, we're talking about reforming a system that has 50 different, uh, more, more than 50, if you count the territories, but it's got 50 different iterations or versions of basically the same system of wildlife management. And what, what that system looks like is, you know, a bunch of laws were passed, state laws were passed, 
in the late 1800s, early 1900s, driven by the efforts of uh, gentlemen hunters like Teddy Roosevelt, who were concerned that they would no longer have game. Uh, the game species were disappearing so rapidly because there was unregulated hunting. They were very concerned they wouldn't have game to hunt anymore. So they lobbied for these laws and then they got started be put in place in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then institutions were created, the wildlife agencies, the wildlife commissions to oversee the state wildlife agencies. Funding sources were established. At first, they were license fees. You know, you had to buy a license in order to take an animal, to kill an animal, a wild animal. And then uh, after 1937, uh, federal money became available to the states for to prop up this system for wildlife management, a, a lot of it just went into serving hunters uh, and anglers. Uh, the problem is, you know, this system is entrenched. You know, it's, it's outdated. It, it, it was put in place by hunters, continues to operate mainly to benefit hunters, and I'm including uh, anglers and trappers in that term. It's based on an ethos of domination exploitation, violence, the same ethos really that drove white European settlers to enslave Africans, to you know, wage genocide against Native Americans. You know, those same set of values were the, the sort of the foundation of our current system of wildlife management. I mean, bottom line, we cannot effectively protect biodiversity in the United States, nor can we adopt policies based on an ethic of compassion and respect for wild animals until we reform the system, because we're just going to keep butting our heads against it. Every single issue that we run up against, you know, wolf hunts and, and killing contests and trapping, et cetera, we always run into this entrenched system. So you ask, what's the next step? Well, um, what we're trying to do at Wildlife for All is we have three main goals. The first is to build this national coalition with representation in every state of, of advocates who are pushing for changes in the system of wildlife management in their states. That's the first order of business. Secondly, we're trying to just generally raise awareness of this issue. It's, it's such a under the radar issue. Even many wildlife advocates don't really understand how it operates how, and how it affects their work. The third goal is we want to help catalyze concrete reforms in the next few years in a handful of strategically targeted states. And our theory of change there is that if we can do that in a few states, we can develop some momentum for reform in the other states. Because we don't, there's no way we have the resources now to work in every state, although we aspire to. But in general, what we're trying to do is get laws, state laws passed or get existing state laws revised to align wildlife management with public trust principles. Wildlife is a public trust. It doesn't belong to anybody. The government, particularly the state government has a duty as a trustee to protect the trust for the beneficiaries and Beneficiaries are all of us, and I would argue it all species as well, because we all benefit, all life benefits from 
the protection of species and ecosystems. And it's not just who's alive today, it's the future as well. And so that's a radical sort of paradigm shift in wildlife management. A second goal is we want to democratize and professionalize decision-making when it comes to the wildlife. Almost every state, 47 states, has a wildlife commission, usually appointed by the governor, oversees the state wildlife agency and sets policy. In many states, there is no requirement that the people that are appointed to these commissions have any particular expertise, any particular representation, interest representation. These commissions are a place for governors to um, reward their campaign donors, especially those who like to hunt or fish. And that's basically what we have. We have these commissions that are, you know, there's probably with all those states, 47 states that have the commissions, there's probably 450 total seats. And at least three quarters of those seats are occupied by uh, what we call consumptive users, hunters, anglers, and trappers. And also many of those seats are occupied by agricultural interests. In some states, actually, you have to be a consumptive user. You have to be a licensed buyer in order to be considered for appointment to these commissions. So, you know, it's, it's just completely out of whack with the idea that wildlife is a public trust that everybody benefits from and everybody should have some voice in how that trust is, is managed. Another reform goal is we, we have to change the way state wildlife agencies are funded. Right now, and traditionally, they've gotten a lot of their money, most of their money from the sale of hunting and fishing licenses and these federal grants, which are tied to uh, guns and ammunition, basically. And also, uh, there's on the fishing side, the Dingle Johnson side, there's attacks on all sorts of things that are, you know, ostensibly uh, associated with fishing, but not really. But anyway, we, we got to get away from this notion of user pay, that hunters and anglers are the, are the primary users of wildlife. And, and ergo, they have, uh, they deserve a privileged voice in wildlife affairs. And that's just, that's, that's just not the way it should be. We, we need a broad source of funding. So those are the three main goals, change the laws, change the constitution of the commissions or get rid of them um, entirely, and then find new funding sources for wildlife conservation for the states. When you brought it all the way back to Teddy Roosevelt, and he was just worried about game uh, primarily, did he include any language? Was, was any of his sentiment uh, in, in all of this embracing a wildlife for all kind of mentality or was it really did he just think about it in terms of hunting and back then hunting was conservation so that should have been good enough because if it goes all the way back to there do people nowadays know their history of those 450 seats or so does anybody among them know their history so well that they can say well we have a mandate to run state wildlife agencies in this way and these commissions in this way because it goes all the way back to the founding of what uh, state wildlife agencies were. Is, that, is there any truth to that? There's a, a conflation, <laughs> a confusion of uh, the historical roots of wildlife management and what should be 
wildlife management going forward. And there's this thing called the North American Model of Conservation, which does exactly that. It's both uh, an attempt to describe how our system of wildlife management developed in the United States and with a lot of uh, praise for folks like Teddy Roosevelt and, and hunters. Um, and some of that praise is, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not arguing with, I mean, the fact that Teddy and his buddies effectively lobbied for game laws is the, is the reason why we probably still have, you know, elk and we don't have all the species of elk. We lost the, uh, the native species, Miriam's elk in New Mexico and Southwest, the subspecies anyway. So we still have elk, we still have, you know, white-tailed deer, mule deer, pronghorn, bighorn sheep. And those are, you know, th those have been the, the species of focus in wild turkey of, uh, these new the, the game laws that Teddy and his buddies helped us uh, get enacted. They were people of their times, right? At the time, carnivores were thought of as bad. They were thought of as sort of uh, monstrous and, and competitors for for game with human hunters, and you know, uh, eventually, I mean, they became a they were they were seen as a problem for livestock operators in part because you know their their wild prey had been so decimated but there's you know this is all pre ecology pre understanding that all species have a role to play not a whole lot of probably thinking that among at least among the people in charge of the US government and state governments that there that wild animals had an intrinsic right to exist and basically those the system hasn't changed although society has, has moved forward. We now have, you know, modern ecological understanding. We know the role of all species in ecosystems. We now have changing attitudes and values of the public towards wild animals. We have now have a lot more understanding about wildlife cognition and how animals, you know, feel and think. And our system of wildlife management has just not kept pace with, with those advancements. You are an occasional hunter. You've made that clear. And people uh, around you and in your organization, outside your organization, several of us hunt or have hunted um, for food. You know, it's not like you're against that or, but that's the way people start to make it seem. But then again, the public is not really as into that stuff. And there aren't as many hunters as everybody might think. What is it like 5%? Yeah, it's about 5% of the U.S. population hunts, uh, maybe 9% of the population fishes. So we're talking about a minority of the American public. But they're running the wildlife. They're making the wildlife decisions for all. <laughs> like they're yeah. making all the decisions for what happens to, like, what did you say that the number of wildlife watchers, uh, what's that statistic? Well, according to the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, and, uh, every five years survey of, it's a national survey. They ask people how they, if they hunt, if they fish, if they watch wildlife. About a third of survey respondents, about a third of the American people report that they enjoy watching wildlife that are living, living animals, um, as opposed to 5% that like to hunt and 8% or so that like to fish. So beyond bird watchers, what, what other types of activities and people are we, are we talking about? 
for that survey, I think it's, did you actually expend any effort or money to, for the purpose of going and watching wild animals? I, I don't think it was specific to birds, but of course it would be a lot of bird watching. Yeah, I, would, I would imagine the most, most organized group of wildlife people in the world, I think are birders. I mean, the yeah. argument could at least be made. Um, yeah. But I mean, we're talking about people up in, in Yellowstone looking at wolves and also down in the Southwest looking at wolves. We do have some folks down there as well that are um, organized a bit and just leaving things alone, hiking for the enjoyment of everything that you can see that's alive and not dead and not with the intention of shooting with anything other than a camera. Yeah. yeah so on paper in, 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 in reality, the, the country is very much going in a different direction. Does that give you, what kind of leverage does that give you as you think about the campaign ahead? And that gets back to our second main goal of the campaign, which is to raise awareness of how the system operates and why it's a problem. Because more, as you say, more and more people are tending to hold values with respect to wildlife that prioritize coexistence with wild animals, that uh, recognize the intrinsic rights of animals to exist, that are not primarily interested in, you know, consumptive uses, hunting, fishing, trapping, but are mainly interested in just, you know, making sure that animals are okay and, and, and enjoying their presence, you know, as part of the community of life that they, we all belong to. Um, there was this excellent survey done out of, led by Colorado State University folks in 2018, it's called America's Wildlife Values, and they have a whole website on it. And they demonstrate uh, comparing survey results from the early 2000s to 2018, people are moving in that direction and they call them mutualists and they're, that's sort of a whole value orientation. But people, more and more people are thinking they want to coexist, they want, they, they, they view animals, wild animals as sort of equal uh, members of the community of life, you know, uh, with rights. And the sort of the opposite approach, the traditional, you know, animals exist as resources for human use, that sort of value orientation is on the descent. So you're right, the public's changing in its, in its views. And yet, the people that are benefiting from our, you know, this entrenched system of wildlife management, they're putting up a, a fight. You know, any sort of suggestion of change that would give non-hunters a greater say or uh, you know any way restrict hunting it is met with vehement condemnation as being anti-hunting it's always anti-hunting there's no and and these are the hunting groups like rocky mountain elk foundation the congressional sportsman's foundation sportsman's alliance and even some of the more moderate ones like boone and crockett they are quick to label anyone that says, you know, questions the status quo as being anti-hunting. And it's just this, this, this knee-jerk reaction. And of course the gun groups do the same thing, like the NRA, uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, these, these gun lobby groups, they like to wrap themselves in this cloak of being defenders of the hunting tradition, even though, you know, they're mostly about promoting gun sales and, you know, opposing any sort of gun controls, they have, you know, embedded themselves in the wildlife management space. 
and 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 the money the money connection has helped make that happen but the gun industry now has a, a growing influence over wildlife management at the state level and uh, you know that's a real problem you're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. It's a timely one, too, um, as people are looking at the gun industry very closely right now, again, and will be next week and the week after uh, new things are going to keep popping up because that's another place where they fight really, really hard. But what if we make them be more articulate? What if we make them have to, I mean, they can usually clear the room with saying you're all anti-hunting and then that gets everybody sufficiently on their side riled up and everybody's mad. Well, can't we make them, force them to be more articulate? What do you mean anti-hunting? We've given you all these examples as to why we're not actually anti-hunting. They have to stop being so lazy at some point if we challenge them properly, right? Yeah, I, I think it's it's not a good long-term strategy for a retaining power. This is all about power, right? Mm -hmm. So you've, we've got this, this uh, iron triangle relationship between the, uh, the state wildlife agencies, the bureaucrats. Traditionally, they've gotten their, a, a good chunk of their money from uh, hunters through licensed sales and through these uh, federal taxes. Uh, on guns, ammunition, and fishing tackle. And it's still a, a, a significant portion of wildlife, say wildlife agency revenues, but it's not, it's, it's, it's often overstated. But nonetheless, this is the tradition, this, this iron triangle has developed. The bureaucrats see uh, people that buy hunting and fishing licenses as their main customers. So they cater to them. Uh, their constituents are the people that buy those licenses and they like being privileged, hunters and anglers. And then the regulators are the commissions that oversee the agencies and establish policy. And they are mostly members of this privileged group as well, hunters and anglers. So they, of course, continue to implement, enact policies that benefit that group. And it's very convenient for the legislators because they, in, in many states, do not have to fund the agencies. The agencies just do their thing without getting, you know, any appropriations from, you know, of general funds from the legislatures, and that that's what really needs to change. But um, that's power, okay? You know, the, the actors there have power the uh, by their through their relationships with each other. Um, but you know, things are changing, and, and there's a lot of pressure on the system to change from externally from groups like us, from you know, this whole wildlife for all campaign. But even within the agencies who are seeing a decline in the number of people that are buying hunting and fishing licenses, and you know, they see that as a uh, sort of existential threat to their revenues. So um, there, is, there are these stressors on the system. Um, and you would think a rational actor <laughs> would 
you know, figure out how to manage those stressors in a way where they retain as much power as possible. But instead, hmm. hunters and hunting groups and the gun groups, they are just waving the anti-hunting flag whenever they can, thinking that that's all they need to do to prevent change. Oh, anti-hunting, you know, they, they want to get rid of a spring bear hunt. They're anti-hunting. They want to get rid of trapping. They're anti-hunting. It's, and it's just, it's a little ridiculous, uh, but it's, it's been effective, um, but it won't be, it's, I don't think it's a good long-term strategy. So there's been this interesting internal conversation, discussion within the state management, uh, state wildlife management uh, community for a number of years now about how do we make ourselves more relevant to a broader uh, segment of the public. Not much has changed. And I think the reason is because the people in the agencies either don't want to change or they don't know how to change. They're just like, they're so embedded in this entrenched system uh, that they don't know how to reach out to non-hunters. They just don't know how to talk to non-hunters. And, and most people that work in these state wildlife agencies hunt, you know, so that they identify with these privilege, you know, this privileged constituency. And then there's been a sort of a parallel rise in what is called R3 programs. And, and these are programs designed to increase the number of hunters. Rather than reach out to non-hunters, <laughs> it's, you know, okay, how can we, how can we solve this potential funding problem as the number of people that buy hunting and fishing licenses declines? Let's convince more people to get into hunting and fishing. And that's what they've done. The agencies have really doubled down on these R3 programs. And the R3 stands for recruit, reactivate, and retain. You know, reactivate hunters that have stopped hunting, retain the hunters that are still active, and recruit more hunters. And the recruiting part is really focused on young people and using the whole, you know, locavore sort of approach. It's, it's focused on women, and it's focused on people of color. And there is a whole R3 industry out there. And the gun groups have really helped to fund this. Uh, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, which is the uh, trade association for the firearms industry. <clears throat> it's, you know, it's, it's probably as important as the NRA or maybe more important, but it's, it's not as well known. They have given out, uh, thousands of dollars in grants for these R3 programs to the state wildlife agencies, to hunting groups, you know, that's not surprising, but also groups like the Boy Scouts, 4-H clubs, and they've sponsored uh, projects like getting hunting added to college curricula for credit. So in some places you can actually learn how to hunt and go hunting and get credit, college credit. They've also sponsored reports on all sorts of ways to, you know, R3 um, angles, including, you know, Hispanic recruitment, uh, but also things like how to, how to get more people to shoot coyotes as a way to increase uh, the number of hunters. So, <clears throat> and that's the gun industry. And, and what's their interests? It's not defending the hunting tradition as much as it is about promoting gun sales, right? And getting people to take up hunting is a way to increase gun sales. But 
more and more of these R3 programs are not just focused on hunting, but also on what they call recreational shooting. Fun fact, most guns in the United States are not purchased for hunting. Probably at least 75% of guns purchased today are not purchased for hunting. It's, it's okay to you know, promote hunting as a way to promote gun sales, but you also have to go after people that might wanna get into recreational shooting, just you know, target shooting. And that's what these R3 programs do. They also um, make money available to encourage people to you know, go out and buy a gun and take up target shooting. Uh, it, it, they provide money for the states to build more shooting ranges and do more activities related, you know, to cater to uh, non-hunting gun owners, essentially. And this all got a huge boost from Congress in 2019 when a bill called the Modernizing the Pittman-Robertson Fund for Tomorrow's Needs Act. It passed with little fanfare, but it added the, the words recreational shooter and recreational shooting to the text of the Pittman-Robertson Act. The Pittman-Robertson Act was passed in 1937. It took an existing tax on firearms and redirected it to the states for wildlife management. It was a significant infusion of money to the states for wildlife purposes, and it has continued to be. In fact, it has it really grown as a source of money for the state wildlife agencies. And that's happened because the sale of guns in the United States after 2004, after the expiration of the federal ban on assault weapons, after that expired, gun sales have skyrocketed in the United States. And with every mass shooting, there's a spike in gun sales. People are afraid that the government's going to you know, enact stricter gun controls. With every spike in gun sales, more money goes to state wildlife agencies and wow as of as of 2019 so yeah there's a connection between gun violence gun sales and revenues for these state wildlife agencies which i don't think is a healthy connection but after the passage of the modernizing pittman Robertson act in 2019 the prohibition on using those funds for r3 programs was lifted and Congress authorized $5 million annually for those programs. So now we've seen an explosion since then in the number of programs implemented by, uh, you know, gun and hunting groups, as well as state wildlife agencies to get more people to hunt. It is fed, it's a federal subsidy for, for the gun industry. And it's, uh, it, it just further cements this link between guns, gun groups, hunting, and wildlife management in the United States that I think is a real problem. And, and we, need to, we need to address that. This, it's not, it's not a small change either. In fiscal year 2022, the amount of money generated by Pittman-Robertson taxes and that went to the states was $1.1 billion. Well, I, th I don't think this is a good way to fund wildlife conservation. Wildlife conservation is fundamentally a life affirming uh, task for protecting wild animals. 
and ecosystems uh, in the face of a mass extinction crisis and climate change. And we're funding it by the sale of these items that are associated with so much you know, violence and death. I, I just don't think that's, I think a better use of those Pittman-Robertson funds, $1.1 billion would go, would be to put it into efforts to reduce gun violence. If you were somebody who was really worried about the money for your wildlife agency, um, and you're just working at that very marginal bottom level, yes, $1.1 billion sounds like a lot, but when you compare it to what must be the number, some other number, a much, much larger number that people spend on on hiking and 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 all of the outdoor stuff. I mean, we have to find a way to quantify that. I'm sure somebody has. If you thought that your 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 fiefdom was in trouble, you would want to find a, a larger source of funding or a broader source of funding, and you couldn't do better than the much much larger organization of of Americans who are are spending money other than shooting things. And then there is a, a potential source of federal funding that's uh, in the works uh, that's not associated with uh, you know, consumptive uses of wildlife, and that's the Recovering America's Wildlife Act. It's been introduced and had hearings in both the Senate and the House. It's got bipartisan support, and it, and it would provide, it would actually flood the states with new federal funding under this act for wildlife conservation. And it would specifically go to species that don't typically get a lot of conservation attention by state wildlife agencies. It's, you know, to go into the details a little bit, the, the money would be for use, would be allocated for the implementation of state wildlife action plans, which uh, are plans for conservation of what are known as species of greatest conservation need. States generate those lists supposed to have public input when they do that and develop these plans but anyway these plans are largely you know sitting on shelves because there's very little money to implement them so the recovery in america's wildlife act uh potentially would uh, deal with that and it's a lot of money it, it'd be on the order of pittman robertson money but as currently written rawa as we say recovering america's wildlife act has very little accountability it's going to the same state wildlife agencies that are part of the problem now, overseen by these commissions that are a huge part of the problem, you know, mostly hunters, uh, and very and really no um, no requirements to report back to the public on how the funds were spent, and, and or you know uh, allow for opportunities for the public to have a, a say in how those monies are spent there's nobody on these boards that has the qualifications to direct this money to conserve rather than uh, just adding to the pile of money that they already have for hunting and fishing. Right. And, and these commissions are, you know, susceptible, ironically, to political influence, you know, excessive. They were created by uh, hunting groups as a way to shield wildlife agencies from, you know, overt political interference by the, you know, governors and other folks. But um, in reality, they now uh, serve as a conduit for, uh, you know, a, a increased political influence by certain 
constituencies like hunting organizations, like agricultural groups. And in our state of New Mexico, the oil and gas industry. A few years back, the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish was, you know, all the states were going through a process. And they have to do this every 10 years to update their, revise their state wildlife action plans. And New Mexico was going through that process. And the department proposed to add uh, a bunch of species to the list of species of greatest conservation need based on you know, you know, the science. A lot of those species were invertebrates, insects, oil and gas industry, the ranching industry didn't like that. They made their objections known. The commission got involved. I mean, it will always get involved because it has to, in, in, in states where it has regulatory authority, authority, it has to approve these plans. It said, no, we're not going to approve the revision with those new species in it. You have to take those species out. And they did. And we almost lost our um, state, almost lost the little bit of funding that it got from the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, for implementation of the plan because Fish and Wildlife Service wasn't sure that it was a good plan anymore. They eventually did approve the money, but that's what I'm saying. You know, if you're going to flood the states with new money and, and have it go to the same agencies, the same commissions, uh, without any public accountability, those are the types of problems we're going to see. And there's going to be an optical problem too when we're opposing a bill that on its surface and at a, at a public's level of understanding is going to be very weird. Why are you guys opposing a bill for for conservation isn't this what you wanted i mean it's going to present because we cannot allow money more money to go into the same machine that's already chewing up wildlife in all 50 states yeah i mean i mean the, the reality is if we get the amendments to rawa that we would like to see the bipart the support of the republicans will dry up that's the bottom line and so you know, it's it's like some groups are taking the are are supporting the Rawa, like the National Wildlife Federation. They are rah rah for Rawa. They are leading the, you know, the effort to get it passed. Groups like the Center for Bi Biological Diversity are very, they're holding their nose essentially and supporting it as the you know, you know, there's things we don't like, but you know, we think overall it could be a good thing. And then there are some groups that are just withholding support entirely. Wildlife for All has uh, sent a sign-on letter signed by about 30 groups to members of Congress asking for these changes, but to no avail so I far. I mean, it is, this might be overly cynical, but is, is, if it at least goes through, are we able to use that as a cudgel, uh, you know, as some sort of, because we've not been able to be at the table because they always say, well, did you pay for a hunting and fishing license? I mean, it's right. hunters and fishers that have all of the say here. And it's and they have excluded, I believe, purposely other money from being offered from coming in just yeah. because that that threatened the fiefdom. And it would give people like us a say because it's like, well, look, look, you're not, it's not all money from fishing licenses now. Yeah. All the hunting groups and gun groups are on are supporting Rawa. That's a red flag. That's a huge okay. Red flag. <laughs> That's all we need to know. <laughs> That's then. a huge red flag. Um, but I do think, even as currently written, if the bill passed, it would drive change within the agencies. 
because like I said, it's, it's going to be as much or more than the annual Pittman-Robertson allocations that the states get. So it's gonna create this huge source of funding for the agencies that at least on paper has to be used for not primarily to benefit hunters, uh, but to really support what we would consider wildlife conservation, biodiversity protection. Uh, th through the mechanism of these state wildlife action plans. Um, that remains to be seen if it'll happen, but that's, that is the intent of the bill. Um, and I think, you know, with that money, the agencies are going to hire a lot of non-game biologists. I mean, a lot. In, in New Mexico, uh, the department has, has estimated that they're gonna hire like 70 new biologists. And all these biologists, their focus will be on non-game species. So that's going to create a huge sort of cultural shift within the agencies, I think. I'm starting to be more supportive. I'm listening. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I mean, even, I mean, there are real problems and we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Uh, it is very concerning that groups like the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, which is bad on so many wildlife issues, is supporting Rawa, or that uh, all the state, well, the state wildlife agencies are supporting it, but you know, go figure. Uh, it's it's going to double their budgets. Even if the bill passes as it's currently written, the states still have to provide a 25% match. And, and so there's, there's going to be, you know, a lot of discussion and, and, and bills introduced in state houses to uh, come up with a matching, those matching funds. And it's, it's a significant amount of money. I think there will be opportunities at the state level for uh, wildlife governance reform advocates like Wildlife for All to engage with state legislators, you know, to put, you know, put constraints on the matching funds. Uh, in New Mexico, it's going to be $9 million a year in state money as a match for RAWA. We'll give you that money, but here's what needs to happen. You know, you need to support statutory changes that align wildlife management with public trust doctrine. You need to support efforts to put more non-hunters on our game commission. So I think there'll be opportunities at the state level, but, you know, that's going to be 50 campaigns. Hmm. And it's, you know, they're not going to go anywhere, probably in Montana and Idaho, but in states like New Mexico and Nevada and you know, Washington, I think there will be opportunities to push some reforms. I sense opportunities for listeners to help you out. In what way would you like to see uh, your work that we talked about today supported? Well, check out the website, wildlifeforall.us. Um, inform yourself of the issue. You know, if you're inclined, get active in your state with um, one of our partner groups. Um, you can also join our coalition. We have an organization that is sort of coordinating this national campaign. And it's also called Wildlife for All. And we're a membership organization. So you can donate to our Wildlife for All organization and sign up for our newsletter. Kevin, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. I, I'm, I'm glad you are a, a little more optimistic. <laughs> I was worried, but now I'm better. <laughs> it's going to be, uh, you know, we're talking systemic change to a, a system that's been in place for uh, 100 years or more. And there are some 
people that currently benefit from that system who don't want to see any change. So it's not going to be easy, but I think uh, there are reasons to be hopeful. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.